One year ago today, November the 14th, 2019, it started off as a normal morning. Kids got up, went to school, parents went to work, and here in Santa Clarita, we were all enjoying what brought us to this town. Safe schools, safe neighborhoods, and California living in a small town environment. But at 7.38, everything changed. A sophomore at Saugus High School took a gun out of his backpack and fired into a crowd of students on their way to class. Five students were hit before he took his own life. Two were killed, Dominic Blackwell and Gracie Mealberger. I remember I was sitting in a local restaurant having breakfast with a couple from the church. A waitress came over and said there'd been a shooting at Saugus High, and not long after that I got the call. Two of our students, two friends of my daughter, had been shot. And what we would learn later is Gracie did not survive. Today on the podcast, I sit down with the parents of Gracie, Brian and Cindy Muehlberger. Typically on this podcast, Leading Simple, we talk about how to do just that, lead in a simple way. And there's nothing simple about this. But how do you lead yourself, your family, and a community through a tragedy? How do you process this as a parent? How do you go on? How do you process this as a follower of Jesus? Where is your faith? And what could be done to prevent this from ever happening again? Welcome to my conversation with Brian and Cindy Mielberger. Brian, why don't you start off by just telling me about the morning of November 14th, 2019. What do you remember before your lives changed forever that day? Um, can you just walk me through that morning? Yeah, so it wasn't a typical morning. It was, uh, we had a planned surgery for, for Cindy that morning. She had unfortunately torn her ACL in January of 2019 um, skiing, and we've been putting off a, a surgery for a while, and mm. finally had picked a date, and it turned out to be November 14th. So we had to be at the surgery center in Van Nuys, which is about 25 minutes from Santa Clarita, uh, pretty early. I think they wanted us to be checking in around 5.30. So we got up probably 4.30, 4.45 in the morning. Uh, so it was a little outside the normal morning. You know, usually I would say we were getting up at 6, 6.30. Cindy's getting up, taking care of the kids, watching them take off for school because they each had carpools or Brady would take himself and Gracie would carpool. And, uh, and on this particular morning, um, I took the day off to take Cindy to the surgery center. So we get up early. Um, I go downstairs, have a quick cup of coffee while Cindy finished getting dressed. And, uh, and then she went in to say goodbye to Gracie. Um, whenever she's ever had any sort of minor surgeries or any, any uh, doctor situation like that, uh, that she has to go under, under anesthesia, uh, she's more concerned about herself uh, not making it through anesthesia. So mm -hmm. she kind of went in and uh, woke Gracie up and, and gave her some kisses and hugs and kind of said to her, um, you gonna take care of mommy when I get home? And mm. you know, Gracie's like, yeah. And you know, she gives her a kiss and tells her she loves her um, and then comes downstairs. I uh, finished my cup of coffee and unlike a typical morning, we walked out the door. Uh, my typical morning would be before I leave, you know, if Gracie or the kids are still sleeping, I'd still go give them a kiss on the cheek. And, uh, and unfortunately I didn't that morning. So um, 
we take off. We, uh, we're running a little bit late. Uh, Cindy's stressing out that we're supposed to be there at 5.30. And uh, so we're, we're, we're a little bickering, I would say, to some extent. Uh, just like, oh, gosh, which way do we go? And then there was almost a, uh, uh, an accident on the five, and we saw a cop getting ready to maybe shut down the highway. And we're like, we don't need this right now. Mm. Ends up going a different direction, so we're all good. So we get to the surgery center a few minutes late, I think like 5.40, 5.45. Of course, it's a packed waiting room and uh, everybody's in there uh, waiting to get checked in. So like, apparently they want everyone to check in really early in the morning. And uh, so, so we're in there waiting. Um, I start shooting a conversation up with a, a guy next to me and uh, he you know, tells me about his, you know, his wife's situation. I guess she had a, a wrist issue and we're talking about Cindy's knee and then him and I start talking about all of our personal injuries in our life and kind of jovial conversation, having a good time talking to this guy. His name was Tom. And after a little while, Cindy gets, uh, gets called and she goes and starts doing her prep work while I'm still in the waiting room. And then, uh, and then they call me in maybe like around 7, 7.05 in the morning. Uh, hey, she's getting ready to, to go into anesthesia. She's all relaxed. Uh, why don't you come in and you know, uh, see her off before she goes into surgery? So they, they take me into the back. I say goodbye to Tom. I said, I'll see you later. And uh, I go into the, the back room and Cindy's all prepped up. She's in her gown, laying in the bed, has her phone with her, which she usually never has. Um, in a surgery situation, you usually have to lock all those things up. But they let her bring it in and she was kind of still just, you know, checking social media and doing things, checking email. And uh, we're getting to talk and I take a little selfie of her before the, before the surgery. And, uh, and then we, uh, we, I give her a kiss goodbye and she gets wheeled off and she hands me her phone. She, uh, she takes off into surgery. I go out into this waiting room that, that's now on the backside of that surgery area. So it's for those that are actually in surgery. So there's a smaller waiting room in the back. So I go in there and it's now about 7.15 and I sit down, open up my laptop, uh, start doing some, some work related stuff. And about 7.17, I, I say to myself, oh shoot, Cindy told me to make sure Gracie got up for school. And, uh, and I was supposed to call Gracie around 6.30. And I forgot. Um, so I'm kind of in a panic and I'm texting Gracie saying, hey, did you get up for school? Are you on your way? And uh, she says, yep, we're in the car right now. I said, okay, you know, mom just went into her surgery and uh, should be a couple hours, um, but I'll text you when she's done. I love you. And she says, okay, love you too. Um, that ends up being the last text I ever get from her. Um, I don't know that at the time. <clears throat> so, um, she says that, and I continue doing some of my work. And about 7.42 a.m. in the morning, um, I get a text from Brady, her older brother, who's a, a junior at the time. She was a freshman. And he says, hey, Dad, we're under lockdown. I don't think it'll be anything, but just in case, I love you. And uh, we've, we've had experienced a lockdown before at August High School. So, you know, you kind of think, well, maybe this is just a... Um, you know, somebody made a threat, um, an issue occurred, maybe a fake threat of some sort. And you just kind of, you kind of go through your head like this, you know, this is one of those situations, but you know, I'll go ahead and open up a group chat between Brady and Gracie and start, you know, making sure they're okay. And so I start talking to them both saying, you know, make sure you keep texting me every, every minute or so, let me know how everything's going, um, keep me posted. And so every minute goes by, me and Brady are, are talking, I'm still haven't heard from Gracie. And uh, time kind of goes by and I'm starting to search online, you know, possible shooter, you know, situation at Saugus High School. 
And so I, I pull up a Twitter feed and, and I see, you know, um, some stuff from SCV Sheriff talking about how they're rolling a bunch of police officers and, and helicopters over to the school. So I'm getting a little more anxious, like maybe this is more serious than, than I thought. And then um, Brady texts me again and says, we're, we're in the room, we're locked down. Um, have you heard from Gracie? And I'm like, no, I still haven't heard from Gracie. And I'm like, we need to find Gracie. I'm getting really concerned. And this time kind of keeps on going by. I'm on my computer still searching around. I finally find a, a KTLA 5. They're uh, an NBC affiliate here in LA doing a, a live chopper view of the high school. So I'm watching this chopper, you know, showing kids running from the school. Um, they're quote unquote chasing a shooter into one of the ravines behind school. And uh, at this point, I'm, I'm going, this is, this is serious. This is not a hoax of any sort. And I, have, I still haven't received any messages from Grady, Gracie. And, and it's probably at this time, like maybe um, 8.20 or so at this point. Mm. So um, time has gone by quite a bit at this point. And I still hadn't heard from Gracie. I'm now, Tom is now in this waiting room, this, this guy that I met in the previous waiting room. And him and I are having this conversation. He can see my anxiety building. And I keep saying to him, I'm like, there's an active shooter and I can't get hold of my daughter. I'm freaking out. Um, I decide I'm gonna look at find my iPhone. And uh, you know, of course, during all this panic, I don't know why I didn't think about that sooner, but mm -hmm. I finally decide to. And I'm looking at find my iPhone and it's pulsing kind of near school, but not. Um, and, it, and I think it had to do with like probably a, the inflood of calls going on around that area that the cell towers weren't as effective as they could have been. But it was, it was showing a, a spot kind of two blocks away from school. So I'm texting Brady going, is this a, is this a boyfriend's house? Is this a friend's house? Is she skipping school? And he had, um, you know, no idea. And he's like, I, no, I don't know. Give me your location. You know, give me the find my iPhone information. And I'm, I didn't want to share that with him because I just don't share that with him because I don't want him to find our iPhones. Uh, so, so I, um, I sent him a screenshot. I sent him a couple screenshots. So I actually have screenshots of this from that day just because of that conversation. And it was pulsing at one spot, then it was pulsing at a different spot. And then I do a refresh. And this is when I notice something really strange. The uh, blinking light on the Find My Phone of the, the mapping software on there is showing it going away from school, going down Bouquet Canyon, which is uh, one of the main arteries outside of Saugus High School. And I immediately think, you know, I'm watching the news, CN, they're still trying to look for this shooter guy. Um, and now I see a car driving or my daughter's phone pulsing away from school. And I'm immediately thinking she's been kidnapped. Mm. This guy's not in the ravine. He's in his car and he's kidnapped my daughter. Mm. And uh, so I step out of the room, you know, in a panic and I call 911 and I'm on hold for about a minute and a half. <laughs> mm. uh, they never answer. Um, I'm sure they're getting an influx of calls. Uh, and I, so I, uh, I do another refresh and I see it going a different direction, going down Valencia, um, which is heading a different direction. And then I refresh it again while I'm standing there on hold and I notice it's going towards McBean Parkway, which McBean Parkway is the roadway that goes in front of Henry Mayo Hospital. So I immediately knew um, she's on her way to the hospital. I don't know if she's in a car or an ambulance or what, but she's heading towards the hospital from school. At this point, I'm in a complete panic. I hang up on 911. I knock on the door because it actually locks from the outside. So I'm actually stuck outside this waiting room in this hallway and I come back in and I grab my stuff and I'm telling Tom, I've got to head to school. I think something's wrong with my daughter. Um, she hasn't responded to any of these texts. It's now 
8.30 maybe. Um, and I've got to head out. I've got to get to Henry Mail Hospital. I think that's where she's headed. And I, I gave him my phone number. I said, can you please just let the doctors know that I had to leave my wife's, you know, in anesthesia right now. She has no idea what's going, going down. So I bust out of there as fast as I can. And it just feels like it's taken forever to get to the highway. I have to get out of this parking garage, you know, and have to pay on your way out. And there's a line, you know, and then I'm hitting every light and I'm literally at the light that's getting ready to go onto the 405, which heads me back there. And I'm 25 minutes away from Santa Carita in the hospital at this point. And I'm stand, sitting parked right next to a cop car. And so I, I have this thought, I should roll down my window, get his attention and see if he can escort me there and we can go at a higher speed. Um, I don't do that. And he ends up going the exact same direction I'm going the speed limit the whole way. So I am, you know, I am, I am shaking. I am nervous. I can't get a hold of anyone. I have no one to call. Um, and I'm going the speed limit. And all I want to do is go 100 miles an hour to get there. And I can't call Cindy. Um, my mom at the time uh, is, was battling lung cancer and was kind of in a frail condition. And I didn't want to worry her. She tends to pass out when she gets very nervous and excited about certain situations. And so I didn't want to, you know, overly overwhelm her. Try to call my sister in St. Louis. Uh, she's the only, it's kind of like you, the order of things is like your, your spouse, your mom, your friends and family, right? Um, and I couldn't get a hold of the two most important people in my life, my wife and my mom. So I call my sister, she doesn't answer. She always answers. She was in a meeting, um, saw me calling. Um, I then say, I've got to speak to somebody. I mean, my phone is lighting up her. I have her phone because I remember I took it from her. Um, her phone's going like crazy and I, I don't know what to do. And um, so I finally call my mom, you know, and I tell her what's going on and she loses it. She doesn't pass out or anything like that, but she's completely upset as well, as you can imagine. Uh, and this kind of transpires now for like 25 minutes as I'm driving there. It was the longest drive in my life. And I, I pull into the ER at the hospital. And at that moment in time, I get a call from the doctor that's working on Cindy telling me how great the surgery went. And I'm like, okay, thank you for that. But um, I, you know, I had to leave. Um, there's a situation, there was an active shooter at Saugus High School and can't get a hold of my daughter. And I think she's at Henry Mayo Hospital. And he's, he, he gives me, you know, um, you know, he's like, everything's gonna be okay. You know, we'll take care of Cindy. Don't you worry about her, you know, just let us know next steps. And I told her, told him that uh, this guy, Tom, you know, has my contact information and we'll work on arrangements. So I pull in, I park the car and um, I've been in this ER before. We've, we've got young kids, they've broken arms and cut fingers and things like that. So I book it into the ER. I run into the ER kind of frantic as any parent would be. Uh, and they say, well, we've got a, a bunch of parents coming in. We don't know who's who or what's what. Um, we're moving everybody to this back like cafeteria area. So I get shuttled back there. Um, I walk into the room. Um, uh, one of the things I didn't mention earlier is one of Cindy's friend had called her phone and I had answered. And she says, well, I'm really close by Henry Mayo. I'll just head over there. Mm. So she's in there when I get there. And, um, you know, everyone's got these like wide eyes, you know, almost teary to some extent from the emotions of that morning. And I immediately think, you know, something, they already know something that I don't know. And they, and, you know, they all calm me down. They're like, no, 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 we don't know anything yet. We're all just kind of here in, you know, anxious waiting like you are. And I could just feel that something was wrong. You know, you have these, um, 
these gut feelings in life. And uh, I don't know if they're gut or God or what, but something was telling me something was way wrong. And uh, I just kept on wanting to not believe that this could be happening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's amazing how you kind of persevere in these moments where you just kind of keep moving one step forward. But at the same time, you know, this isn't normal. I shouldn't be here. Why am I even here? I shouldn't even have known my daughter's potentially in this hospital. Um, and yet here I am because of find my iPhone and all these circumstances. So one thing leads to another, you know, they're wanting, you know, people to provide photos of, of any kids they think might be there. And, you know, I provide a photo of, of Gracie and uh, the social worker kind of goes back and forth. And then eventually, you know, they come in and, and they grab me and they say, hey, you know, uh, your, your daughter is here. She's in, in the ER. Um, we're going to walk you, you know, towards that direction. So they grab me. Uh, Heather comes with me, our, our close family friend who was there. And we walk towards the ER. And I remember walking, you know, towards the ER. I've been in this ER again before. And I just remember seeing at the end of the hallway where the main center of the ER is, you know, that main central desk that you know of uh, where all the nurses and surgeons and doctors are all congregating. But in this case, there was probably like, looked like 10 to 12, 15 doctors, like in a huddle, like in a circle. It was the most doctors I've ever seen in, in this ER in my life. And they're all just kind of huddled around. And I'm thinking I'm walking, gonna walk down to them and then be taken to the room that Gracie's in and I'm going to see her in some bad condition. Um, maybe maybe a bullet wound, you know, maybe, maybe she fell running, you know, uh, I, I don't know what I'm gonna see, um, but I didn't, I didn't think she'd be dead at this point. I didn't, I, I definitely prayed and hoped she wasn't. Um, but as I'm walking, they stop and we turn into one of these little rooms. Um, and I know what these rooms are because I had had a head injury about a year and a half prior uh, and I was in the ER. <clears throat> and while we were in there, a gentleman had come in with a more serious head injury um, while I was getting my stitches and they had to move me out. Um, and we heard them yell some codes over the, the PA and doctors came running into that room. And, and eventually, you know, I asked one of the doctors, you know, what does that code mean? And they're like, that means, you know, someone didn't make it. And I was like, oh gosh. Well, as we're leaving, we go past one of the, these little rooms that I had just been taken in and I see this family, the doors open and they're all grieving in there for the loss of their loved one. So I knew once they turned me into this room, this is really, really bad at this point. And I'm very emotional. Um, I keep praying. I keep saying, God, no, this can't be happening. Please protect her. Um, and so we're sitting there, uh, me and Heather, and uh, there was a couple other people in there. It's so vague. Uh, doctor came in. He's like, we don't know anything yet. Um, of course, he's lying at this point because they're trying to figure out what to say and when but I don't know that. And he leaves and then a uh, sheriff's detective comes in. Mm -hmm. I've never ever had to talk to a homicide detective in my life, um, nor should anyone. And so she's, you know, inquiring about the morning, the day, you know, Gracie, things like that. Um, But she won't tell me anything. Mm -hmm. And 
I just keep on saying, you know, I just need to see my daughter. Is she okay? You know, and uh, we don't know. We don't know. They kept telling me that. And eventually, you know, I'm sitting in there and just like you see in the movies, you know, a, a doctor comes in, uh, sits across from you, uh, way closer than we are. Uh, I know you were in this room. I called you later and you showed up. Um, so he's probably almost, we're almost knee to knee, you know, face to face, sort of a conversation. And I'm just looking at him saying, please no, please no. And um, he wasn't giving me any reassuring looks or expressions or anything. It was just very somber and straight faced. And you could see he was struggling too for the words. And uh, he just says, I'm sorry. We tried everything we could. And we spent over an hour and a half working on your daughter and she didn't make it. Hmm. <laughs> and that's one of those moments that you just, no parent should ever have to go through. Nobody should have to go through. And I just remember this, this wailing of pain. It reminds me of Jesus on the cross uh, where he yells out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. And I can imagine the pain that came out of Jesus at that moment of being, feeling betrayed and in pain. And it just poured out of me. Just, I just wailed and I just, cried and I said, God, no, God, no, this can't be. And Heather's comforted me and she's, she's demanding of the doctor, please let him see his daughter. You know, I'm like, I just need to go see her. I need to touch her face. I need to give her a kiss. I need to hold her hand. Um, she's alone in this room somewhere in this hospital and I can't go there. And uh, they're trying to calm me down. This goes on for probably 10, 15 minutes. And the detective, you know, was standing there and she's like, I'm sorry, we can't let you see your daughter. And I'm, I'm like, why? This makes no sense. And she says, because she's evidence. <laughs> and I, it didn't quite make sense to me. Still doesn't make sense to me. Right. Um, you know, looking back and, and having multiple conversations with many of the homicide detectives that have been involved in the case. Um, it's kind of a, a gray area of the law. And there's no real clear policy with the, the sheriff's department or LA County Sheriff or anything that says whether or not you need to uh, allow the parent to see the child. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something we want to eventually figure out how to fix right. uh, because there should be at least a clear protocol. Because our assumption uh, looking back is that this, this mother who's a detective, a homicide detective, she, has, she actually had children who were or had gone through Saugus High School. Mm -hmm. um, was probably empathizing with me to some extent and made a judgment call. Um, I don't think it was because she was evidence. Um, she was a victim um, who was tragically shot. And they probably, or she probably knew what the scene looked like in that ER room. Mm. Um, you know, sadly I've, I've had to look at doctor records and coroner reports and, those sort of things. And, you know, I just remember one thing sticking out to me was the fact that it, they pumped 15 pints of blood through Gracie, uh, trying to revive and resuscitate her. Right. And uh, I could only imagine how much blood was going through her and out of her and um, the gauze and the sheets and the, you know, they had to do what's called a uh, thera thera 
myelinectomy, something like that. It's basically where they break open the chest cavity so they can massage and work on the heart um, and try to seal the lung uh, and all of that. So that's how our kind of day went down. Um, and all the while, Cindy is- Is still in surgery. In surgery. Well, she's now out of surgery, kind of recovering. Um, during this whole process, uh, another one of Cindy's friends showed up, a woman named Raquel. Her and her uh, boyfriend uh, went to uh, go pick up Cindy. So they went to go drive to get Cindy. And they, uh, of course, raced down from Henry Mayo to, to Van Nuys and, and pick Cindy up. And Cindy gets out of surgery, doesn't know where her husband's at. Um, she's very upset about that, to say the least. You know, I mean, here you are coming out of anesthesia and you're, you went into anesthesia and your husband was right there yeah. next to you. And you left. And he left. Yeah. And uh, so she was kind of bitter about that. She's like, what's more important than me right now, right? Um, how could he have left for, I think in her mind, you know, did he have a meeting or got a call from his, his work or something like yeah. that? But you um, left Tom there. That's right. That's Tom right. was there. And, um, you know, of course she remembers Tom. She had met Tom and he, he did talk to her a little bit and, and said, yeah, there was just some issue with Gracie and, and your dad, your, your husband had to go. Uh, so when Raquel and, uh, and, and her boyfriend get there, uh, they, uh, they sit down and grab, and grab Cindy. Um, and she's like, well, where's Brian? I don't understand what's going on. And she said, um, well, there's been, you know, an accident at school of some sort, you know, Brian had to run. He had to get to the hospital to go, go attend to Gracie. You know, that's where we're going to head right now. And, Cindy, interestingly enough, shared with me uh, recently, she just had this epiphany that she didn't even think about. She just remembers the drive. And like I said, it's a 25 minute drive. And uh, she doesn't have her phone, but they each have a phone. She doesn't recall even asking like, give me your phone, I need to call Brian. Hmm. Like for that 25 minute drive, the only thing she remembers really talking about was how fast he was driving. And like, wow, you drive like I do, you know, sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she's like, why didn't I call you at that time? I mean, here I'm hearing that there's a problem with my daughter and my husband had to urgently leave a surgery that I'm in and I didn't even bother to call him. Mm -hmm. She can't quite figure out why that's the case. Was it the, you know, recovering from the anesthesia? Right. Pretty groggy after two plus hour surgery. But we look back at other two hour surgeries we've had and we remember being pretty coherent at that stage right. that you probably would have had that thought. So she doesn't quite know. Was that, you know, again, was that was that Jesus protecting her at that moment in time, right. waiting for the right time? Wow, that is interesting. Cindy, do you remember that drive at all now? Or is the shock or anesthesia keep you from that or um so yeah, I I mean I remember it so so very well. Mm -hmm. Um so I remember that when Raquel showed up, the nurses they really didn't want me to leave um, because I had just come out and um, usually you have to like recover for a while. Right. And um, so Raquel said that she went through all sorts of, you know, leaps and bounds to try to get me released. So, yeah, so they took me out to the car and I just remember Raquel saying, do you want to sit in the back seat or the front seat? You know, because I was in a full locked brace, so I couldn't bend my leg. Right. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I can get in the back seat. I'll just go in the front seat. Huh. So we got in the front seat, and the minute I put my seatbelt on, Ben just started driving like so erratically, like just 
like he was in a hurry to get to this hospital. Right. And I remember asking Raquel, what's going on? What's going on? And she's like, I honestly, Cindy, I, I don't know other than Gracie's been hurt. Brian, that's why Brian had to leave. He's at the hospital and we're going to get you there as soon as we can. And, and after that, I just remember just sitting there and made a comment about how fast Ben was driving, like you drive like I do, ha ha, you know. <laughs> but never once did I think like, well, can I borrow your phone to call Brian? And, I, you know, I don't even know if I prayed. I, I, I just remember being just silent. And I don't know if that was, you know, the anesthesia, like not letting me think clearly. I had no, I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody could tell me what was going to happen that day. I thought things did go through my mind. Like, well, did she hurt herself at school? Or, you know, I think that's about all that went through my mind. And um, so when we got to the hospital, he, instead of going to the emergency room entrance in the back, he went to the front. And when we pulled up in front, there were police in front of, you know, the little circle in front of the hospital, and they had it blocked off with cones. And then when I looked to my right, I saw media setting up outside of the hospital. And I still was just, I didn't get it. And Ben rolled down his window yelling at the police. He's like, I need to pull up here because she's, she's the mom. I need to, and she's in a brace. She needs a wheelchair. She can't walk. And, um, they were like, no. And he just, he just went right through the cones and pulled right up and Raquel got out of the car. She ran to get um, Hmm. a wheelchair and got me in the wheelchair. It's just, everything was happening so fast. And I just remember when I, when I, um, entered into the hospital, I remember, um, I remember Steph, my very dear friend being there. And I remember, I remember you, Rusty being there. And, um, I just, I don't know. I just, then I knew, like, it kicked in. But I still wasn't, I don't think I was, I don't know what I was doing. I wasn't crying. I wasn't emotional. I was just like, what's going on? I just wanted to know what was going on. And Steph just put her arm around me as they're wheeling me down the hallway. She's like, just hang in there, you know. And she still didn't know. And um, so anyway, I got downstairs somehow. I guess I went in the elevator downstairs and they just started wheeling me into the ER, which, like Brian said, I had already been there. And then they started, um, they started putting my wheelchair in this room, and I knew what that room was about. And I just knew, like right then, nobody even had to tell me. I just, I just knew that she was gone. And uh, after crying so long. And so hard. Then Brian was like, well, do you want to know, like, what happened? It's like, yes, I want to know what happened. And then when you told me that. Yeah, I, I, uh, when she had wheeled in, she, you know, of course, knew that room, like I had mentioned. And she started, you know, crying immediately. So I kind of thought maybe she knew. Um, and I said, did they tell you what happened? And you're like, no, what happened? She just knew this was a bad room. And I said, um, there was a shooter at school and Gracie's been shot and killed and she lost it all over again. And, uh, it was so bad that, and and because she had this wheelchair and she couldn't, um, get her whole body and wheelchair with this extended leg into this small room, it was kind of blocking the door. 
And, and here she is wailing and crying as, as loud as a mother would during this sort of situation. And you could see them wanting to close the door because it was, it was echoing through the entire ER. Um, and we finally, you know, got her calmed down. Uh, and then we ended up having to give her a small sedation and move her to another room uh, to calm her down further. At this point, I'm still in that room. Um, I think you're there, Rusty. We were working on trying to get Brady there. Uh, of course, Brady was in lockdown, right? And was being transported. And he recently just uh, shared a, an essay he wrote um, for one of his college admittance essays uh, where he talks about that morning. And some things that I didn't know where he was, he was, you know, on a bus, you know, texting me. And, you know, he kept on asking, how's Gracie? And one of my texts finally comes through as, you know, she's not okay, I need to get you here. And he just said, I mean, here he is a 17 year old, no, 16 at the time, not even 17 yet, 16 year old boy hearing that about his sister who he'd just seen that morning. And he just makes a loud noise, you know, kind of a scream of yell of sorts um, while he's on the bus to where everybody just kind of stopped and looked. And um, I think they all knew something was up at this point. And when he finally got to Central Park, you know, he kept on asking officers, I need to get to the hospital, I need to get to the hospital. Uh, I think my sister's one of the victims. And then finally we, you know, through the sheriff, uh, the detective that I'm working with, you know, was able to um, get in touch with another deputy that was at Central Park and, and got him, you know, uh, a drive, a ride over to the hospital. And he just, he remembers, you know, finally them coming up to him and being like, hey, we gotta get you to the hospital. And he's like, all of a sudden now they're listening. And he's like, they're throwing me in the back of this police car. And he says, we're booking down uh, Bouquet Canyon. We're going on the other side of the road, you know, in oncoming traffic, you know, as cars are moving out of the way, uh, just to circumvent all the traffic and noise that was going on around that area. And he was, and I just knew something was bad. And so when he arrives at the hospital, um, I'm in there and he comes in and he is just um, in shock. And I tell him what happened. At this point, I finally tell him the real truth, not that she's just not okay, that you know she's been shot and killed. And he loses it and I lose it. We're holding each other, just bawling. And he calms down after a little bit. And, uh, and now he f senses some anger at this point. And he... Um, says, I need to use the restroom. And so he walks out of the room and goes into the bathroom uh, across the hall, shuts the door, and then you just hear him beating the walls, you know, and they're kind of cement walls. So he, he busted his knuckles up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, it wasn't a great show of, of restraint, but at the same time, I completely understand, you know, what goes through a 16 year old's head. You know, and he told us, you know, later on, you know, how upset he was because he remembers for him, it was a normal morning. You know, he gets up, he drives himself to school. She gets up, Gracie gets up, and she gets a carpool. So they overlap a little bit in terms of timing, um, but he leaves a little bit sooner than she does because he has an earlier class, and um, she leaves a little bit later. But he remembers being in the bathroom. They have a shared bathroom, two sinks, and he remembers going in there and just you know kind of making eye contact with her in the mirror. But he doesn't say anything. Mm. Doesn't say good morning. Hi, sis, you know, hey, loser, you know, anything mm -hmm. that a brother might say to his sister at that time morning, he just kind of goes about his morning, she goes about her morning. Mm -hmm. And he just regrets, you know, not saying hi or yeah. something that morning. So he's, you know, of course, like we have had to since seek counseling for, for yeah. you know, this trauma. Um, but let me step back just real quick and just tell you a little bit about what actually transpired at the school that morning, because we kind of 
told you our perspective, what right. happened in our right. life. Um, but what was really going down at the school was, you know, Gracie was in the car at 717, like I had mentioned. Um, she rode with one of her best friends, Addie, who was another victim uh, who shot twice and survived, uh, Gracie's best friend. And they had arrived together, uh, probably around, we're estimated around 725. The mom dropped them off because she had to drop some other kids off at another school. Drops them off, they go in to the area of the school called the quad, which is kind of an open courtyard area between a number of the buildings. And they go there and they all group up because they're waiting for some of their friends to arrive so they can start uh, finalizing a project they've been working on. And during this time, they're waiting for one of their friends to arrive. Uh, Gracie goes and uh, buys a bag of popcorn from the ASB office and buys her ticket to the dance. We'd given her some money that morning to buy her ticket for her mm -hmm. very first high school dance, which was coming up on that Saturday that she was very excited about, the Sadie Hawkins dance. And she uh, bought her ticket, um, comes back out, has the bag of popcorn in her backpack. Um, the tickets are electronic, so she doesn't have a ticket in hand, but she had purchased it. Goes back to her group of friends, is, sit, is standing there uh, now in the quad. And uh, during this time, unbeknownst to her, um, the, the shooter, the murderer of, of our child uh, and of Dominic Blackwell uh, has been in the quad since about 6.50, 6.55 a.m. that morning. Uh, he had arrived uh, by transport via, via his mom, uh, been dropped off. He was running a few minutes late for class. Didn't go to class. Uh, went because he had an early period. Uh, a lot of the AP courses are early morning. Um, was supposed to be in one of his classes. He goes into the quad area at that early hour of the morning. It's kind of quiet, maybe a few kids in the quad at this point in time. And just starts staring at a, a, a monument called the Legacy Wall. And the Legacy Wall is a, a memorial wall for students that had, had passed um, to remember them. And he's just staring at this wall um, for about... 38 minutes or so, 35 minutes, and kind of uh, acting really strange from what the video cameras on campus show. And and I haven't seen the videos, but uh, this is what's being told to us by detectives and those that have seen it. And he's just acting really strange, uh, standing there staring at this wall for this long, long period of time while he's supposed to be in class. And he then, you know, as more and more students are pouring in, now there's probably 75 to 100 students in there. He decides to move from the wall over to another area, um, really, really close in proximity to where Gracie and Dominic and Addie and Mia and Andrew and all the other kids were kind of hanging out. And now he's facing the other direction, but in what the detectives describe as a trance-like state. They said it was very eerie on the footage of him standing there for this four to five minute window, um, just facing the other direction in perfect silence, not moving a single muscle. While all these kids are laughing and talking and jovial and moving around throughout the quad, he's standing there like a statue. Hmm. Um, then uh, he checks his watch, uh, which happens to be at 7.38, the time of the shooting, uh, checks his watch, puts his sunglasses on, reaches down into his backpack, pulls out a uh, 45 caliber 1911 ghost gun, um, and we'll get in, we can get into the ghost gun concept a little bit later. And he pulls it out, uh, cocks it back, um, aims it right into the back of my daughter, who's standing at point blank range from him, uh, a few feet away, and, and fires the first bullet. Um, that bullet penetrates her backpack, penetrates her back, goes through her left lung and outer breast, um, drops her immediately. Uh, the bullet 
shell jams a little bit because he was shooting with one hand and he uh, clears that really quickly. This is again, this is a second and a half going by at this point. Um, clears it, uh, again, fires four or five more times with uh, the next bullet, we assume hitting uh, possibly Addie at this point, going through her her side of her, basically her back, went missed her spine uh, by millimeters. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen the scar very, very close to her spine, comes out her, her, her right side of her body then we believe that bullet may have entered Mia um, and then it gets lodged in Mia's abdomen. Um, so now two kids have been shot. Next bullet's fired. We think that hits Dominic. Um, another bullet fires. We don't know if that hits anyone. Um, that might've been a bullet that hit Andrew. Mm. Um, then another bullet was fired. And at this point, the kids are running, right? Bullets have been fired, kids have been shot. Addie runs one direction, basically in front of where he's shooting because she's heading towards the choir room, mm-hmm. which is what her homeroom, her first class is. And so she runs to home base, kind of like natural instinct to run home. Mia actually runs the other direction towards, I think, Spanish class, um, but that's her first class. And so they end up running these two different directions and Addie gets shot again uh, in the in the upper right, upper left shoulder. Upper, right or left shoulder, I can't recall. Um, and that goes, exits her body as well. And she then, you know, runs and gets into the choir room. Um, and at this point, now they're starting to lock down. I mean, it's happening so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he then takes the last bullet, aims it at his head and shoots himself. Um, and he had to have been planning the number of bullets that were gonna come out of this gun because the, the very last bullet the gun is cleared at this point. There's no ammo left in it from what the detective said and, uh, and, and drops him. Um, at this point, only about eight seconds have transpired and uh, kids are scattering everywhere. No one knows that it's over. Um, so now it's lockdown, active shooter. It's now coming up on 739 and, uh, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. At about 735, a little bit earlier that morning, um, Detective Dan Finn, one of the local LASD uh, detectives, was uh, dropping off his his uh, girlfriend's son at school. He's a senior. Happened to be dropping him off at 7.35, was on his way out of the campus. Um, there's a lot of traffic during that time of the day trying to get out. So he's kind of sitting in traffic. He's on his, on his phone talking to uh, one of the firemen captains about some training they had that day. And all of a sudden he sees kids hmm. pouring out of the school, running in all directions. And his immediate thought is, oh, there must be a fight or something like that. And he uh, um, asks, asks the, uh, the gentleman on the radio, hey, you know, anything coming across the, the scanner, the radios about anything going on at Saugus High School? And he's like, no, everything's clear. He's like, I've got a bunch of students running out of the school. I'm gonna turn around and go check this out. So he turns his car around, uh, starts heading back towards school. He's barely out of the parking lot and kids are running by his car. So he rolls down his window and asks, you know, hey, what's going on guys? And they're like, there's been gunshots. And so immediately he just goes into his natural mode of operation and uh, port, you know, runs up to the school, drives his car right at the front of school, comes out, he's off duty. So he's not wearing any body armor, takes out his, his weapon, his firearm and uh, enters the campus. And uh, interestingly enough, he's been teaching active shooter drill training for mm. you know, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. So is very familiar with the protocol and he, 
he even feels like he probably violated some of the protocol. Like you don't enter the scene, it's called a hot zone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but as a father and cause he has a daughter and as you know, he just dropped off his loved one. He just, and he's seen the kids pouring out. He's thinking, I, I gotta do something. Mm-hmm. And um, hence why we think he's a hero. And he, he runs in and uh, enters the quad uh, firearm drawn. And he says, he literally sees like maybe a couple kids disappear at that point. Cause it was just kind of still clearing. He goes, and then it was just dead silence. Mm. And all he can see is, is uh, three children on the ground, um, Gracie, Dominic and, and, uh, and the shooter. And uh, he then approaches them. Uh, it sounds like Dominic is a little coherent still, not unconscious. Uh, the shooter definitely is, and uh, and Gracie definitely is unconscious. Um, he can see by the damage done to the shooter that you know probably lost cause there, so he starts attending to Gracie, and he just remembers, you know, and it it shakes him up quite a bit as well mm-hmm. that he just remembers her her beautiful blue eyes just looking up at him in an unconscious state, um, completely lifeless at this point, and he just starts attending to her, and so. At this point, that's when you know he's calling back up and, and everything else transpires from there. So that's that's kind of you know the basics of our morning at that point. Oh my! And, and well, it's only you know at this point for us it's like ten o'clock or so, and we're at the hospital. I first of all thank you for for being willing to even talk about it. Um, I, I think that every parent this is their worst nightmare, and you have walked through it. I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you for that day, but you know, what was kind of your cycle of emotions? Was it, did you feel like you were in shock most of the day? Did you feel like it didn't really register till a few days later or, you know, kind of the, the process of thinking right there? I mean, mm-hmm. how long did it take for this to become, oh, this is, this is real? I, you know, I mean, we still ask ourselves probably every morning, um, how can this be? Right, you know, so I would say there's still a uh, a serious sense of like this can't be happening. Mm-hmm. We're 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 in the matrix or or something right, right now. Um, you know, we walk by Gracie's room every morning. Um, pictures of her everywhere. It just it doesn't seem real. But that morning, there's definitely a clear state of shock that goes on. Not just that morning, but days, weeks, maybe even you know months. Um, you know, I was I was out of work for a couple months, you know, just dealing with all of this. I couldn't even get my mind to think about anything other than survival at this point. Right. But that morning, you know, when we we left the hospital, I want to say it was around 11:30 a.m. and I remember, you know, of course, now we're hearing, you know, there's lots of media. Mm. You know, active shooter, you know, shooting at a high school, all of that, you know, draws media attention quite rapidly. And so we're trying to figure out how to get out of the hospital without having to deal with media. Like that's the last thing you wanna deal with at this moment. Um, you can barely see straight. And so we um, go out some back entrance um, and uh, they get me to my car and I go and get the car and I pull it around to get Cindy. And we, uh, we hop in the car and we, we drive away from the hospital. And I just, I remember that drive so clearly because it was just like, we were in this deep, deep fog um, and such a, an overwhelming sense of grief and sadness that you were almost numb at mm-hmm. that point. And, but at the same time, we're having these 
weird, you know, I just felt this pulling back towards the hospital. Like I, I'm leaving my daughter back there. I forgot something sort of a thing. And, uh, but she's not there. Like her body's there, but her spirit isn't. And we're driving home and we're in, you know, normal, sitting at stoplights like normal, seeing everybody else's life go by like normal. Mm-hmm. And here we are, this couple in this car leaving a hospital mm. and the people next to us don't know what just transpired in our right. car and what we're going through. And I just remember having that feeling, especially right when we got to the corner of Bouquet and Newhall Ranch Road, which is the road going to our house. And I remember saying to Cindy, this is the weirdest thing. I mean, we're sitting here in our car and our daughter's at the hospital. She's just been shot and killed. And people are next to us and crossing the crosswalk and you know, everything's normal outside of this vehicle. Mm-hmm. but it's not normal inside of our life. And we um, we just really vividly remember that. And then we get home, um, get home and we enter the house. Brady had gone home a little bit earlier because mm-hmm. he wanted some alone time. Um, there's already a couple notes on the door from media. Um, I don't even know how they got our address. I guess it's not too hard to find if you can get some names. And we get inside Cindy goes and sits down. Of course, you know, she's in a brace. Um, She's already very uncomfortable. The pain medications are wearing off, but she's not feeling any of that pain. Yeah. She remembers no pain in her leg for, I I almost want to say months, right? It was the weirdest thing. I had a knee surgery before and I remember being in lots of agony. She didn't feel any of that. Like her only pain was in her heart. And she sits down and I'm comforting her. Friends are coming over. They're comforting. Um, my phone rings. It's someone from one of the news outlets. How they got my mobile number? You know, I thought it was maybe a detective. It was an unknown number, so I just answered it. What do they want? Do they want a statement? They want a statement. They want a statement. They want a story. Um, they want facts. They want to know what really transpired. They're trying to you know boil it down and, and share right. it with the public. But what they don't realize is, I would say most people, that's not the time. Right, it's just not the time. Um, it was the last, I mean, I hung up on the person. I don't know who it was. I can't remember what station it was. Um, and I don't think they mean to cause harm. Yeah. I really don't. I think their job is just to get the news, right? But there is a component of that that I think they sometimes forget that this is somebody's life that's just been turned upside down. So we had to deal with that. And I remember a number of people coming by that day, You know, everybody that walked to the door, there was more tears shed. Um, we had all of our Christmas stuff up because she was having knee surgery. And even though it's November 14th, uh, Cindy got it up early. Uh, she likes Christmas, Gracie loves Christmas. Uh, they like to enjoy as much as they can out of Christmas. And so she got it all up, but she also knew she better get it up before November 14th. Otherwise it's gonna be really difficult having mm-hmm. one, one leg and be limping around. So Christmas decorations are up. So the house looks cheery, but it's the, it's the gloomiest feeling in our house at this moment in time, right. it just felt very dark. Um, the day goes by, I don't recall drinking or eating or doing any of that. Um, Cindy eventually goes up to Gracie's room, wants to lay in Gracie's bed. She lays down in her bed and continues to cry. I would go in there and I would leave. Um, our son Riley was is in the US Navy and so we had to work on getting him escorted up from Pensacola. He had just gotten out of boot camp, was down in training down there. So he was coming in around 8.30 that night uh, so we were waiting for him to arrive. It's uh, it's dark at this point. 
and our ring doorbell kept going off, like the motion sensor. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the heck is going on outside? It just keeps going off. I'm thinking, I can understand once or twice, maybe someone dropping off a bouquet of flowers or a card or something. And um, I, go, I go to the window and I look out Riley's window, uh, which overlooks the main street, um, our street that we live on. And there's just tons of people setting up those little paper bags with the candles in them. And they're lining our, <sighs> they're lining our driveway and our street, tying ribbons around the trees. And I just remember crying, but also so touched mm-hmm. all at the same time for the love and support that we're providing at this moment in time. And I just remember going in, into Cindy and just saying, you gotta come see this, mm-hmm. you know? And she got up and looked outside and we were both very touched by it. Um, it's still, as you can see, it's very emotional still, mm-hmm. um, even thinking about how much that touched us. And I remember it, hearing about that yeah. and then seeing it and it was so moving what your entire neighborhood had done right. um, to, to attempt to comfort you. And I, and I wanna ask you about that because over the next probably week, I mean, the amount of things that went on as far as the media coverage, the prayer vigils, the citywide event that took place at Central Park. I've never seen that many people together in the park before, you know, uh, it was probably 10,000 people they estimated. I think over 15,000 people. And then of course- uh, Filled the the capacity. Yeah, exactly. The, um, The actual memorial, the celebration of life, all of these events, and you have people that you know, people you don't know asking, what do you need? How can I help? Is it difficult to know who to lean on, who to trust? Certainly with media, you don't know who's just looking for a story or whatever. And there was so much misinformation out there too. Then you have websites being set up that you have no connection with and Mm -hmm. people are raising money and and it's not even associated with you guys or right. Gracie or Dominic. You don't know what legit is versus yeah, not, exactly. You know? how, how do you how do you weed through all that? And what what was the most helpful for you? Right. I mean, there was definitely a lot. Everything you just described, a lot going on. Um, there's pros and cons of that, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot of distractions that come with that, so that's helpful. Distraction I notice is the one thing that helps me grieve um, because when I think about <laughs> it, it gets very emotional. Uh, but at that moment in time, it was it was quite overwhelming. And I think about other parents that have lost children, and they probably don't get the attention we got. And it all comes down to the tragedy and the situation. Mm. And it's it's somewhat sad to me. Um, we are extremely blessed and so thankful for all the love and support and cards and flowers and you name it, um, Mm. it was quite overwhelming. Every day a package would come with something, a care package of love from somebody. And other parents don't get that. Um, And and I I feel guilty to some extent to that regard that our situation got us that, Um, but it shouldn't take away from the fact that their pain is just as hurtful as ours. And all of that went on, that helped us quite a bit. Um, just hearing the love and the messages of comfort and we're, we're hearing from parents of other mass shootings from other schools of Parkland and Sandy Hook and Aurora, uh, people that I, I didn't reach out to, 
when it occurred to them. Uh, so there's guilt there as well going, <laughs> where was I when they needed me as, as, a, as a Christian and someone who cares? Um, it's opened our eyes quite a bit in that regard. But the trying to decipher um, what's, what's somebody trying to take advantage of versus someone trying to get at the story or someone who's truly being heartfelt was, was difficult. And I remember you know, them coming up with uh, Sog is Strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that was, I think, registered not even 24 hours after the shooting mm-hmm. um, by the city. And uh, it, it was, um, I have two viewpoints on it. Um, and I don't mean anything negative because I know the intentions weren't negative, but sometimes you felt like as if they wanted to move on and move past it mm-hmm. because of this big black eye on the city. Um, and I don't think that's their intention. They wanted to show support and strength and love, but sometimes that's how we felt. Right, mm-hmm. that you know, also, and everybody's putting Saga Strong stickers on everything, and we're like, the only reason that exists is because two beautiful children lost their lives, and these other three were wounded physically and, and mentally forever, um, and all these students were impacted. Um, but we try to try to compartmentalize that and try to r- look at the good in it, and that was uh, the community did rally quite a bit and did show so much support and continues to show so much support. It's it's. It's, it can be overwhelming at times, um, being in a small community like Santa Carita and, and having this much uh, love and support coming at you. The, uh, the vigil, uh, we had heard about the vigil, I wanna say on maybe Saturday morning. We uh, got a call, they were gonna have this vigil. Um, some of the families were contemplating going. Us and uh, Dominic's parents, the Blackwells, were kind of on the fence. Um, we were still extremely emotional. Didn't know we could go and attend something like that. Um, and something inside me um, kind of pushed me to, we need to go, we need to get there somehow. I just don't want to deal with people. I don't want to deal with people or media, right? That was the kind of the two main goals. Um, I want to be around my family, who lots of family have been coming in. I want to be around my friends, around Cindy and my kids. And, uh, and that's what I wanted. So we, we worked with the city and the sheriff's department to get a, an escort over there, avoid the traffic, avoid people, avoid media. Um, mm-hmm. And we had a section that was off to the right of the stage. There was this little private section where we just sat there. And, and we got there uh, while we were driving there. Uh, we had kind of a little bit of a caravan of police officers driving, following us and uh, our family and friends. The Blackwells were having the same thing for them. And we all, we all uh, got there. And uh, the amount of people we saw walking and driving in the traffic, and we noticed just, I mean, hundreds, thousands of people walking and parking along Bouquet Canyon Road. And uh, you can't, if we didn't have the police escort, we wouldn't have got in. If we would have just decided to try to drive there on our own, we would not have gotten in. They take us through these back roads and the police are having people cleared. They're using their, their megaphone on their, on their cars just to tell people to get out of their way. And um, we're just looking out the window at all these people and getting emotional. Um, just seeing that many people come together uh, for your benefit mm. was very powerful. And we get there, we get into the back and we get situated and we're watching all these people flood in. And there, I remember standing on the chair at one point during the, the celebration 
uh, or the remembrance. It wasn't the celebration, it was remembrance. And it was the moment when they held, held all the light sticks up, the blue and white light sticks. And I remember just standing on this chair and just seeing this just sea of light. It's something I'll never forget. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know you, um, your, your choir, um, your, your singers from Real Life Church came and sang mm. at the entrance of that. Um, we had, uh, I couldn't speak there, you know, as you see, I, I, I don't mind talking about it, but at that moment in time, I, I couldn't find the courage. Uh, I wish I would have, I, I think I could have shared some of this raw emotion at that moment in time a little better, but I just went ahead and wrote it on paper. And one of our good friends, Stephanie, um, wrote, uh, read it for us mm-hmm. on our behalf and our boys wrote something and they spoke, um, which I think they did did it justice quite quite well. Yeah, they did great. Um, and it allowed us to just be part of the remembrance and not have to do work. Um, and uh, it just it, it just meant a lot. I I can't imagine. It was just, yeah. Uh, like I said, over fifteen thousand people filled it to capacity, and uh, multiple live streams at many of the churches and schools around town that opened up their doors to allow the overflow to go into those schools, and then mm-hmm. the, the live stream and all the the people that watch it on on Facebook Live and things like that. Uh, it was definitely very powerful. I want to ask you about. Let's fast forward a couple weeks. Okay, media's gone. You know, Riley's back at the Navy, Brady's back in school, um, family's gone home. As you said, when you were in the car on the way home, people have gone on with their lives. Where were you guys at that moment? How did you, you know, I think a lot of people are probably listening, thinking, how do you find the strength just to get out of bed in the morning? Um, you hear about the cycles of, of grief, you know, from uh, bargaining and anger and denial and depression was there a part of that you stayed in longer than others? Um, how did you just put one foot in front of the other? You know, every every day was a challenge. Um, I had completely disconnected from work and anything outside of, of my family situation. And I just remember getting up every morning and uh, just, you kind of woke up and literally for that, maybe that, one, two, three seconds, life felt normal for mm. just that brief second before your brain kicked on and you realized it's still there. Um, this really did happen. And I just remember, I don't have it as much, but I mean a physical emptiness in my chest. Mm-hmm. Like there was this constant um, hollow emptiness, pain literally physically in my chest that I could feel every time I thought about Gracie. Mm. I, don't, I, I don't know how else to describe it other than that. And that would then kick in. Uh, I would walk downstairs and make a cup of coffee. And a uh, little coffee device I've got is called an AeroPress. And um, mm. I had actually bought it before we'd gone on a small vacation to Palm Desert uh, that summer uh, of 19. And uh, I'd use it for the first time in this little hotel room we were in. And I remember trying to figure out the directions on how to do it and make this coffee uh, while Gracie's literally on a couch sleeping um, 20 feet from me, you know, in this, in the family room. And I remember trying not to wake her up while I was doing this coffee. So every morning I use this coffee device. And so I grab that coffee device and I immediately think of her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
something as simple as making a cup of coffee mm-hmm. would trigger me and I would start crying. Um, I'll take my cup of coffee and I'll walk outside and uh, we'd had some concrete work done in the back. And when the concrete work was done, we had all the kids put their handprints in the concrete mm-hmm. in 2014. We moved here in 2013, but had the backyard done in 2014. And so then I'd walk over there and I'd see her little handprint, you know, from when she was, you know, eight years old. And uh, I would start crying again. Um, I just, even outside, the outside air felt different, different, mm-hmm. it smelled different. Um, your senses were off completely. Mm. Um, I'd walk back in the house and I would see one of the pictures of Gracie on her wall. We got lots of family photos around the house and, you know, you just go up and touch the cheek, you know, inside the picture, you know, and cry. And it was just that constantly. Um, and it it was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, I think, you know, having our family and friends, we had lots of family come into town. They were all staying with us. Um, some staying at some hotels uh, nearby, and uh, literally from probably eight o'clock until nine or ten at night, we had somebody else with us supporting us, mm-hmm. and they'd carry us through each day together. Um, Cindy might be laying up in Gracie's bed crying. I might be sitting downstairs getting frustrated with a friend of mine um, or crying, and um, and they just. They listened, they prayed for us, they cared for us. They made us breakfast or tried to. I don't, I don't remember still eating much mm-hmm. during that time. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was hard, you know, but I think I'll talk about faith a little bit here. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about yeah. that. And that's kind of where I wanted to go next is you guys are, are believers, followers of Jesus, and you've been involved in our church ever since you moved here been involved in church before you moved here. Uh, what did this do to your faith? And um, kind of where is it now a year later? Let me step back just a little bit before we arrived in Santa Clarita. Um, we had had some ups and downs with our, with our faith. Um, we, I grew up Catholic. Uh, Cindy grew up Baptist. Um, she had fallen away from the church. I had always followed the normal regimen of the Catholic faith every Sunday go to church. Um, all the holidays, all that. My family was very devout Catholic. So when I met Cindy, I kind of brought her back to the church and we, we kept going to you know Sunday mass with the Catholic faith. Uh, eventually had our, got married Catholic, had our children. Um, they were all baptized Catholic. Um, as they got a little bit older, but still young kids, um, they're rambunctious as normal little kids are. And the church we were going to in, uh, in Missouri was, uh, didn't have a cry room, quote unquote. Um, so we had no place to go for our loud kids. So they, we had to stand in the back with the, what's called the vestibule. It's basically mm-hmm. like the, the, the entryway of the church. And I just remember us being back there a number of Sundays, trying to attend mass, trying to get something out of it. And all we're doing is chasing these little three kids running around the, the back of the church. So, uh, so we eventually stopped going to church. And so for a couple of years there, we didn't go to church at all. Um, life just got in the way. Um, we had some struggles with our marriage. We weren't getting along, you know, money's troubles, um, kids driving you crazy, everything, and just life just is getting tough. Um, and so we decided we need to get back to church. We, we need this in our life. That's a very important thing. And uh, we, we came back to the church, but we went to a Lutheran church, St. John Lutheran in Ellisville, Missouri, and started attending that. And they had a great program for, for kids. Hmm. Um, so they separated the kids from the adults and you could put your kids in this little youth program, different age groups, 
very similar mm-hmm. to what real life does, and allowed them to hear the word of God in a way that they could understand stories that they would get, while we at the same time were able to focus on the message uh, that was being given to us. And uh, in the Lutheran church, uh, the pastors can be married so they could talk about their marital problems. And I just remember, you know, from a, a young young pastor to an older pastor that would preach on these Sunday mornings, talking about, you know, the fights they'd have with their spouse and how they would work through it and how they'd pray together. And we were inspired by that. And we just said, uh, we're getting a lot out of this, right? And our, our marriage turned around. Um, I joined a, what they called Ironman, uh, Ironman group. Uh, basically it's a men's, you know, Bible study group. Uh, six or seven of us got together every Friday morning at 6 a.m. and uh, either uh, went through certain sections of the Bible or we'd follow um, a certain book and we'd all come and talk about a chapter for that day, those sort of things. And Cindy got involved in MOPS, which is uh, Mothers of Preschoolers. Uh, and met a lot of women there who had young kids, but were also in, in, in the faith. Uh, and it just it just brought us up. And I will say, we would have probably not made it through that time of our marriage if it hadn't been for us coming back to our faith mm-hmm. and having something, I think, bigger than us um, holding us together. And I think that's that's the powerful union of, of marriage and, and faith is that um, even when this physical world that we're in uh, becomes hard, there's something outside of us um, that holds us together. Uh, it's that, it's that, that bond, that glue. And uh, as long as we're seeing eye to eye and working on that together, the, the rest seems to somehow fall into place. So when we moved to Santa Clarita uh, or moved to LA, we didn't know we were gonna move into Santa Clarita. We kept on looking for houses and based on budget, we kept moving further and further away from where I was working in Santa Monica, because Santa Monica is extremely expensive uh, and eventually found this great town called Santa Clarita. Uh, awesome town is what I think their moniker was. Um, <laughs> And so we, uh, we fell in love with the community area. Uh, one Sunday we're here looking at houses and so forth. And we drove down Newhall Ranch Road and we saw Real Life Church sitting here. And we're like, you know, we should go there Sunday. And so we we're staying at a hotel nearby. And we went to that, went to one of the masses, one of the church uh, services and uh, fell in love. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys had this great music. It was energetic. The, I don't remember if you had preached that first Sunday we were here um, or, or what, but we just remember walking out of there going, this is the church and this is the community. And so we planted our roots here and um, we did it for a few reasons. One is, you know, I mean, great schools, mm. safety yeah. and great church. Um, we at least got one of the three right <laughs> with, yeah. with Real Life Church and, uh, and thank God because uh, you guys have been a rock in a moment in time in our life when we needed it. You need to back up and tell them, um, when you got the job offer from Red Bull mm-hmm. and you came home and said, you know, let's move to California. Yeah. And I said, there's no way I'm moving to California. There's no way. And um, you're like, well, at least go out and visit. Let's go out and pick a couple places we can go visit and just, just see, you know. And so I did agree upon that. And then when we came here... I immediately was like, oh, I could totally live here. This is just like moving, you know, Wildwood, where we live in Missouri, just picking it up and moving it into Mm -hmm. L.A. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when we first got off the plane and got down on the 405, I was like, yeah, no, not happening. That El Segundo area. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, like, yeah, (laughs) still not, you know. And But then when we came out here, it was just like, 
perfect. Like God had just said, this is where you're going to live. And, but the, there was two, um, two, only two reasons why I would move here. And it was, um, it was if our kids could go to a Christian school Mm -hmm. and if we could have a pool in the backyard, that's it. (laughs) So those two things and I'll, and I'll go. And so Brian agreed. So we did both. Um, we eventually got that pool, right? That was in 2014. And uh, right when we moved here, we put them in Santa Cruz Christian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where we met all of our currently really close friends. Um, mm-hmm. And a number of them even go to real life church. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we, I think that's a great point that, that Cindy just made is uh, something brought us here, right? Um, of course, you know, I, I mentioned the, the safe schools and, you know, great schools and all that stuff and church, but um, something bigger, I think, was at play. We still don't have the answer to that, but um, it's it's odd that we're here and this has happened and this is now our life and our story, but it's, it's not completely written yet. Mm-hmm. And we don't know where God is leading us right now. Um, we're just kind of taking one step at a time and uh, still questioning our faith quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I know I am probably more so than Cindy is, and she's now being my rock. Um, you know, I brought her back to the church. Now she's trying to keep me uh, in the church and, and, and faithful, and she's, she's so wise in, in terms of her study around the Bible that she keeps reminding me of, of things that, you know, we used to all nod our heads about when we'd read it in the Bible. And here I am, you know, kind of saying one thing, she's like, but, God never promised that we'd have no pain on this earth, you know? And she's like, where does it say that in the Bible? And I'm like, you're right, it doesn't. Um, I, didn't, I didn't really think it would happen this way or this would be the kind of pain we'd experience. Right. But, uh, you well, know. I think too that um, just laying in Gracie's bed, even that day and for the next weeks after that, all I could think about was, and this can only come from God, I honestly believe, because, you know, you would think that you would just be angry and and just, you know, like you're never going to make it. I, I think I remember in the room when I was told, I kept on repeating, and I don't know why, but I kept on saying, like, I can't, I can't, you know? And when I got home that night, I was wondering, like, why did I keep on saying I can't? And I'm thinking I kept saying that was because I just thought I can't go on like without my baby girl. And um, I think that's the reason I kept repeating that over and over. But um, I just feel like, no, I can, you know, and it's only because of God's strength, you know, that I'm even here today, I think. Um, But I I just remember laying in bed thinking, we had 15 amazing years. Like, I'm trying to look look at all the positive, you know. And, um, you know, there's people that lose children younger. And, like, we're just, we're not guaranteed, you know, tons of time here. We know God is good and life is short. And, you know, I just... I keep thinking like I'm so proud of Gracie because she lived it so well, you know, and um, so yeah. That's yeah, I mean Gracie definitely lived um, her life the way her life needed to be lived. Um, she was just such a free spirit, um, did it her way, and I'm just so thankful that she did. 
Uh, I know she didn't spend a lot of time on academics. We had to push her hard, <laughs> but I'm glad she didn't at this point. Um, I would it would have been wasted time. And she got the most out of her life. I mean, she had um, and still has a number of amazing friends um, that she, you know, inspired their lives. They inspired hers and touched her and made her life happy. And she's, uh, she was funny. She, she mm-hmm. had the biggest and most boisterous laugh. Mm-hmm. It was contagious. If you heard it, you, you, you can't help but laugh. We watch old videos and we still laugh every time we watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, she makes us smile still when we're watching those things. And you know, our, our two boys, is, you know, all three of our kids were baptized Catholic, but Gracie's the only one that stepped forward on her own here at Real Life one Sunday. Mm. Um, we've constantly pushed the boys like, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. And it'll come on their own time. Um, why was she inspired to do it sooner? Wow. And I just remember listening and watching a video that was sent to us uh, a few months after Gracie had passed. And it was sent by her friend, Addie, mm-hmm. who had uh, filmed her in the, in the kitchen. And Gracie is uh, standing there texting on her phone while she's got a little coffee concoction drink. And Addie's uh, zooming in and out on her way in the background over the Alexa device, uh, the song, If I Die Young uh, is playing. Who's that band? Band Perry. The band Perry. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a song about someone dying and kind of sadly dying at a young age. Um, and they're talking, but it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a great song. It's a sing-along song for sure. And they're just blaring it and, and kind of zooming in and out. Gracie's not singing any of the verses, but she gets to one verse and then the footage cuts out. And it was the verse that says, and I've had just enough time. And, See, she, sings so and she sings it so loud in her screechy, raspy. <laughs> screechy, raspy voice. Um, <laughs> and then the, the, the video stops. And it's the, it's amazing that that's what she, that was the one verse she decided she's going to say right. at that moment in time. And this is months after she had died while we're still questioning everything and we're hearing her say, and I've had just enough time. Mm. Um, we were just blown away by that, you know? And it's just like, I've told you a number of the stories of just how these weird things have happened in our life that can only be God inspired um, for that to occur and for that to be delivered to us at a time when we're going, man, she's so young. She, didn't, she had a whole life ahead of her. Mm-hmm. And then she's telling us in a happy voice, you know, I've had enough time. Mm. And to know she was a lover of God and a believer. Um, she, went to, she went to Lake Hume and, and wrote in her journal and, and had conversations with God uh, at the age of 13, 14, and 15, mm-hmm. um, where she is questioning her future and her current life and her challenges and saying, you know, things like, and I just felt a whoosh of wind come by, you know, like while she's writing in a journal, I'm hoping that she was outside somewhere and literally God was kind of breathing on her in a sense. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, and I can tell you, I can tell you a number of other things, a number of other stories that, that have touched us in, in such a unique way. You just kind of go, God's, God's there. Yeah. Let me ask you, cause I know we talk a lot about Gracie and, and her love for life and, and you certainly want that to be remembered and that to inspire and, and tell me about Gracie Strong and what you're trying to do with that and the message you'd love to share. So, um, 
shortly after the tragedy, you know, and Saga Strong was starting to um, trend and be communicated around the community, um, we decided for that remembrance celebration um, to not only say, you know, we are Saga Strong, uh, but we also said, you know, and the things that I wrote up that Stephanie wrote that read that night was we are also Gracie Strong and Dominic Strong. And so people started using that quite a bit. And it just stuck with us that um, that's what we should name the foundation. You know, we wanted to do a foundation in her honor. We wanted to do some good. She brought a lot of love and joy and happiness to the world. And there's a lot of broken pieces related to this tragedy that we feel like we could support. But the word Gracie Strong just kind of signifies her and her strength. She stood up to bullies. She dealt with challenges in her life, always holding her head high. And we just felt like um, everything we've seen from her can be embodied in this foundation. And mm. uh, so as it relates to what we want to do with it, you know, there's, uh, there's ideas around uh, a journal. Uh, we want to create something called the Way Journal. Uh, there was a, a moment in time the week of where uh, Cindy was dealing with some challenges with Gracie. And uh, she says, Gracie, who are you? I want you to write on a piece of paper, who are you? And uh, Gracie's on her way up the stairs. She's like, who am I or who do I want to be? She's like, just write both. And, uh, and this is three days before the tragedy. And Gracie writes this beautiful yet sad and happy sheet of paper about herself. Um, and who are you being way, right? And kind of like, if you knew who you are, you can kind of figure out your direction in life. Hmm. Um, and uh, it, it said positive things and negative things that she felt about herself. And I think if children, uh, maybe even adults, were to think about this more and share that more, the, the good and the bad, you know, I think I'm ugly. I think I, you know, I look weird. I, I think I'm smart. You know, I, I think I'm funny. Um, I like this, I don't like that. If they knew these things more about themselves and shared it, I think it would bring everyone up. And it was inspiring to us because we were able to have a really great conversation with her that week. Uh, we even had a great conversation with her literally the night before on her bed about some of the challenges she was having and some of the stuff that she wrote and addressing some big topics in her life. So um, I just wanna say that um when our kids all turned 13, that we bought the Passport to Purity book. Mm -hmm. And um, I just recently found there's 50 questions. And I'm just, I'm so bummed that I didn't get through all 50 questions with Gracie. We got through like maybe two to three pages. Um, but I just found that in, in her handwriting. And it's kind of the same thing, asking like different questions about who you are. Um, you know, tell me five qualities about you and um, just really good questions. And so reading her answers at 13, they were all positive. She, you know, just I'm funny, I'm pretty, I'm, you know, compassionate, I'm loving. And then for me to have said that to her three days before, just because of what we were going through to kind of go back to that, you know, who are you, Gracie? And then she came down and I saw like this whole list of things. And I started reading one off at a time and I'm thinking, she put, I'm ugly. And I was like, wait a minute, hmm. who, who, what? Who, 
you know, you're listening to other people on the outside tell you this and you're starting to believe it. You're not ugly. And I wish I just had, you know, that piece of paper handy because I could have sat down with her and said, well, wait a minute, what's changed, right? Because at 13, you said you were all this. So what's got in your head? You, you know, you know, ex- she knew exactly who right. she was, but she was writing down things that people had been, Put in her head. yeah. Right. So. And so, so you could yeah. imagine having something where, you know, a, a child is doing this on an ongoing basis. And then you do like annual reviews of sorts where you look at what you've said about yourself in the past. And then you kind of compare what's changed. Mm-hmm. How am I changing over time? Is it, am I changing for the good or the bad? Am I changing for myself or for others? Um, so we believe there's something there with the Gracie Strong Foundation that mm-hmm. we could do. Uh, we also, you know, kind of the big overarching mission of it is to give youth and individuals a voice because we believe their voice is powerful and it matters and it should be heard. Right. Uh, if you go to GracieStrong.org, you'll see it say, you know, speak up, be heard. Um, and you know, during the whole tragedy, there were so many opportunities for someone to have said something that could have circumvented this issue. We could have avoided this tragedy. Uh, whether it be through uh, the shooter's family, you know, speaking up about mental illnesses in their family or substance abuse or physical abuse, or even that morning, you know, seeing his strange behavior, someone would have just stopped him, maybe went up to him and said, it happened to be his birthday. Hey, happy birthday. Uh, maybe that would have changed the whole day. Maybe that's all he was looking for that day was somebody to remember his birthday. We don't, we'll never know. Um, and there was so many things that we just kind of go, man, why didn't... Sp- people speak the F up about this, right? And so the speak the F up kind of kept coming through. And we noticed in her text as we were kind of going through her old iPhone, you know, she'd always write TF and it was short for WTF. Um, and so we've kind of created this speak TF up hashtag that kind of goes with this message as well around, you know, you need to say what's on your mind. And if you're hurting, you need to tell somebody, uh, if you see someone being hurt, you need to speak up and, and step in. Um, I think as a society, we're, we're too passive and we think somebody else will take care of it or someone will notice I'm hurting and address it. Sometimes you just need to say it, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, a, that's kind of the mission. Um, right now we've done a few things. We, we did a, a caroling last year, caroling with Gracie to raise uh, canned goods for those in need in the community. Uh, we've donated to a number of GoFundMes. We've provided some care packages to some kids that were, are fighting some disease. Um, and then most recently we did this uh, Gracie Speak Up and Speak Out Challenge where we had uh, over 20 video submissions from Saugus High School students um, asking, answering that question. You know, how do you get teens to, to speak up about bullying or when they're hurt? Um, what would you say to teens that you know, are afraid to speak up? And the power of the words of these, these young, um, you know, soon to be adults, uh, high schoolers um, made us cry. It was powerful. And these are short little three minute videos that these kids really thought through. And it just inspired us um, so much that we think there's there's something there to help create a platform for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave away five uh, iPhones as part of this. Uh, that was kind of the giveaway. And we got to meet each of the five kids that won. And, uh, and we heard from all of them, thank you for, for giving us an opportunity to be heard. Yeah. Right, and uh, so somewhere in the the mission of Gracie Strong is is this platform to give them a voice in some way, shape, or form, and for them to know who they are. That's so great, and uh, I think would be a wonderful thing for people listening to check out GracieStrong.org. And uh, listen, I just want to say thank you for your vulnerability, both of you. 
we're uh, we're at the year mark and i know it's been a lot of uh, emotional moments along the way gracie turned 16 a few weeks ago yeah. and you guys celebrated that out at uh, a park near your house and uh, they can obviously follow uh, on social media and learn more about gracie and her legacy and uh Having, yeah, on Instagram at uh, Gracie Strong now. Gracie Strong now. Mm-hmm. Having uh, having known Gracie and uh, having her be a friend of my daughter's, I can tell you, I can still hear her laugh. <laughs> it was infectious yeah. and wonderful, and and she lived a remarkable life, and it continues on. Yeah, so she's she's the reason why we uh, keep pressing forward, and uh, she inspired us to, you know. Uh, believe and continue to ask questions and uh and to do good Um, so thank you for giving us the opportunity yeah well thank you so much well i'm so grateful for brian and cindy sharing their hearts with us again gracystrong.org is a great organization to be a part of a foundation that's been set up to bring awareness to things kids are struggling with today to give a voice for kids who are struggling today And if you're interested, Brian was on an episode of 60 Minutes a few months ago to talk about this issue of gun violence in schools, specifically the ghost gun that was acquired by this student, which requires no registration, background check, or anything. You can buy it online, uh, which is cause for a lot of concern from a lot of people. And he walks us through that on that episode of 60 Minutes. I thank you for listening to this, and if it's encouraging for you to hear how someone is walking through their difficult days, and maybe you know someone else that needs that encouragement, share that with a friend. And as always, we continue to pray for the Muehlbergers, the Blackwells, and all those connected with the Saugus Strong family, and for all those who have been impacted by this awful tragedy. Thank you for listening.